0: Welcome to the Italian Wine Podcast. I'm Cynthia Chaplin, and this is Voices. Every Wednesday, I will be sharing conversations with international wine industry professionals discussing issues in diversity, equity, and inclusion through their personal experiences working in the field of wine. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and rate our show wherever you get your pods. Hello, and welcome to Voices. This is me, Cynthia Chaplin, and today I am absolutely delighted to have Kimberly Betts with me. Kimberly is the managing director and global diversity, equity, and inclusion leader at Deloitte Consulting. She has over 25 years of experience driving DEI, organizational transformation, and change management. Her personal and professional mission is to create more equitable opportunities and outcomes for people who are historically marginalized everywhere in the world from the workforce, the marketplace, and society perspectives. So Kimberly is Basically, my ideal guest. Anybody who's listened to Voices before knows how passionate I am about these topics. So, thank you so much for coming on today.
1: It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Oh, great to have you here. Uh, I'm so fascinated because you were working on these ideas, you know, DEI and all of the the challenges that 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 causes way before DEI ever became a thing, long before it was a term in the sort of local language and and in our consciousness as work people. So I'm just wondering, how did you get involved in diversity, equity, and inclusion originally, you know, over 25 years ago?
1: Uh, what, What brought you to that? Interestingly, at that time, about 30 years ago, I'm dating myself, I started my career in consumer. So I'm in the consumer industry at Deloitte. And I've always been in the consumer industry. And I started my career at a grocery retail company. And one of the things that was really clear, <laughs> overtly clear, was how homogenous the leadership team was at the time um, and how, when you look at who are the consumers making decisions, particularly in grocery retail, particularly, particularly around food purchases, at that time, it was about 85 or more percent women. But women were not running any of the companies that were selling, or were creating, making, or selling any of the grocery retail products. So I noticed that, and ended up getting connected with some women in the industry. Actually, through my CEO at the time, his name was Bill Grise, Um, and he was a huge ally and and supporter. He's no longer with us. Um, I'm sad to say. Uh, but one of the things that Bill did as he, he was a mentor of mine, and certainly a sponsor of mine. And he came back to the office one day, and he said, "There, you know, there's this there's this woman that I talked to at I think it was a lunch or a conference or something, who's looking to try to do some things to try to help support women in the industry. Would you be interested in doing that?" And I said, "Absolutely." Um, so I got connected with those women. I showed up. <laughs> I showed up at this meeting in New York. With this room full of energetic, amazing women, uh, I was probably quite a bit younger than than a lot of these women. A lot of these all these women had spent quite a bit of time in the industry, with the sole purpose of figuring out how do we support each other, how do we how do we bring women into the industry and help them help make them successful. And so, what was born out of that connection was uh, a nonprofit organization that we created called Network of Executive Women. It's now called Next Up. So it's been alive and thriving for, we incorporated that probably 20, I guess maybe about 25 years ago. So it's still it's still working, which is amazing, the fact that it's still uh, thriving in the industry. And so it was really back then that I started uh, really being interested in, I think this could be something I could do. And so I continued in my career uh, it, at the grocery retail company found my way to Deloitte um, because I worked with Deloitte actually as a client. Um, and I thought, "Ooh, these people are really smart. I really like them and they're fun. That was really important to me. And that's how I ended up at Deloitte. And at the beginning of my career, did a lot of things, certainly in the transformation area, but have never thought, I had never gotten very far away from this purpose around how do how do we help women, which sort of evolved for me into how do we help people who are marginalized and getting opportunities. And now that's a lot of what I do at Deloitte is work in the equity space, helping clients figure out who's getting marginalized and what is happening in the organization, what's happening in the marketplace to perpetuate that and how do we interrupt it? Very exciting.
0: Yeah, that is exciting. And it's so interesting, such an interesting story. You know, as you said, Going back 25 years and noticing that, you know, it's a little depressing that, that it's still uh, something that has to be really brought up and, and dragged to the forefront and, and, and looked at more and more. But I'm interested how it spun off from being a desire to support women and, and moved into an outreach towards other marginalized people, people of color, you know, all kinds of LGBTQ people in our communities, our work communities. And I love what you said about finding fun people to work with. I think it's not enough to have people who look at these challenges often uh, with a certain degree of anger or feeling, you know, a bit of a chip on the shoulder. I think we've all been through it. You and I are of a certain age and coming up in industries that were predominantly run by men, wine for sure. And as you said, retail in general run by men, especially when we started. Uh, we won't talk about when that was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's, um, it's interesting how fun people do tend to form a more supportive and proactive and successful group than angry people. So mm-hmm. I love that you pointed that out. That's something that we don't touch on enough. And and I think being positive about affecting change is, is something that's pretty important. But it's it's pretty clear that, you know, the challenges faced by marginalized people in the workforce are still there. You know, we we talk about it, um, not just women, but but other other groups of people as well. But it's a little bit less clear, even after twenty-five years, that businesses recognize these challenges and what it means to a company's bottom line. I'm wondering how you start that kind of a conversation. With a company's leaders, especially if they're men, and how do you convince them to invest in DEI?
1: It certainly has been a journey. So my own journey around this whole topic of marginalization has been a journey. Um, as someone who grew up, I grew up as a white woman in the U.S., um, and there's a, a, a certain. The U.S. has very. We have a very specific history with oppression, and as but as someone growing up white, there's a you know there's. There's certain there certain kinds of oppression I didn't experience. And so the only way to understand that is to actually focus on it and be very deliberate about experiencing it. And so the approach I try to take to people who have never experienced marginalization is I call it space and grace. So assuming positive intent, assuming, you know, maybe someone has not experienced that before. Particularly for white men, I think it's really it can be really difficult. And so I spend a lot of my time, <laughs> I have to say, I usually try to preface it in appropriate situations in the spirit of love. You need to understand that this happened or you you did this, which created this kind of feeling. And so what when I'm talking with CEOs in particular and leadership teams and trying to understand the history of our marginalization, we don't, I mean, it's a 420-year-old issue that we have. Um, At it didn't least, happen, probably longer. Right. We didn't, it didn't happen overnight. And so it's not going to get remedied overnight. Um, and so in talking with, with leadership teams and consumer in particular, one of the things that can be really powerful is talking about what's happening with the consumer, uh, because consumers, especially... Uh, younger consumers as they're coming into sort of the economic, the economic scene, uh, amassing wealth to be able to spend discretionary. Um, they have discretionary spending capabilities. That population is getting browner and more diverse, right? It's, it's much more diverse than my generation. I'm an Xer. I'm a se- senior Xer, as I like to call myself. And so as you think about the backgrounds of this generation of consumers and their experience with the world and the way that they, the lens through which they see the world, they are making very deliberate choices about where they're spending their money. And they're making very deliberate choices about who they're spending some of their career time with. When you look at sort of the age, that the lifespan of someone coming into the workforce, now it's much longer than mine uh, will be and so their careers are going to be much longer and which means that organizations they have a huge opportunity to tap into that longevity of a career if i would say having said that if they do not un, you know really internalize how consumers are starting to pay attention to these topics of oppression and what are you doing as an organization to interrupt oppression by you know interrupt oppression across all identities, not you know, a single identity. If you're not paying attention to that, and if you're not creating products that feel inclusive and, you know, someone with much more diverse background can relate to and resonate with, um, and if you're not supporting the communities in which you serve and operate, then people are people will continue especially Gen Z, Gen Alpha, I don't whatever, I don't think we've named the next generation. Uh, Millennials, of course, to a certain extent, they're going to make decisions with their dollars. And so they're going to spend them in different places. So don't be short-sighted about, don't get to a point where, oh, wow, we've completely ignored this and now we're, we're at a crisis point. That's really the, the conversation I try to have with CEOs That's, and leadership teams.
0: That is such a good point. And I think being able to point to to the bottom line with CEOs is going to grab their attention. I know I have six children. They range in age from early 20s to early 30s. And they are my consumer focus group, as are my young university students that I teach And it is very interesting what they will pick up on and and what they're looking for in terms of where they spend their money compared to, you know, what I was doing at at that age and stage. You know, back in my day, and I'll now date myself, it was apartheid and not not engaging with companies or universities, as was the case with me, that were invested in apartheid. So I watch my young students and, and my own family making some really interesting decisions, having interesting conversations about companies that they won't support because of of these practices. So pointing out a bottom line to a CEO, I think, is probably the most powerful. It shouldn't be, but it's probably the most powerful tool that, that we have. So you've spoken a lot, I know, in interviews that I've read that you've done about the future of work. And I'm I'm really fascinated by that term and how DEI is becoming part of that conversation. What do you mean by the future of work, and how do you see diversity and equity and inclusion becoming part of that?
1: Future of work is 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 a term we started talking about actually pre-COVID, so before the pandemic. Um, As a as a firm, we started talking about this topic, and some of the trends that we started seeing before COVID were around the desire for greater flexibility. When you look at the the career span, like I said, of someone your children's age coming into the workforce, the thought of spending a career at a single organization or two is just not something, it's not a fra- It's no, not a frame of friend. Nobody
0: mind. stays long enough to get a gold watch anymore. I don't think, you know, even my colleagues, myself, you, you know, we don't intend to have our career in, in one place and certainly not my children for, you know, a 40 years and, and a gold watch.
1: Right, right. So understanding that that is the trend and how you think about attracting people and how you think about retaining people or following someone through their career span, which may have times inside your organization and times outside of your your organization. So that's sort of a trend that we see in the future of work. Another trend that we see, and it will be really interesting to watch what companies do, particularly in this this economic, I don't know what to call it, this economic thing that we're in now. Um, Chaos,
0: volatility.
1: Volatility, exactly. Where the jobs, it's interesting because our chief economist points to some of the strengths in the economy. When you, when you consume some of the sort of public information, it seems more dire, and then some days it doesn't, and then some days it does. So it'll be interesting to see what organizations do as we move through this related to sort of the, the network of who can do things to help you achieve your business objectives, which are not necessarily people on, on your balance sheet. It could be people... Off of your balance sheet, skills and capabilities that you can crowdsource, different bodies of work that don't necessarily have to be held inside your organization as you think about what are some of the core things that you want to be able to be an expert in or your organization wants to keep in house because you need to keep controls, not the right word, but you need to be able to monitor and watch that on a daily basis. The notion of sort of the off balance sheet associate or off balance sheet set of skills that you might need that you don't necessarily want to take in house you want to you want to keep it off balance sheet and then this trend around output so you know when i think about when i started my career grocery retail it was you showed up you were seen you interacted with people and your your being there indicated a certain level of activity. And whether there was actual output or not was less of a focus where organizations, especially with the onset of technology and AI. And I was reading an article today on LinkedIn about all of the technologies you can use for diff- to complete different things just in your daily life. So in an organization, it becomes that much more exponential. So based on all of that, what do you really need to keep on your balance sheet? And what can you keep off of your balance sheet now there are all of the issues around well okay how do people deal with healthcare? you have to you know historically you had to be in a job to be able to get access to reliable health care and things like that how that changes and those are policy issues businesses always always are ahead of public policy and so that when i think about the future of work it's all of those things combined playing a role. And so from an equity perspective, how do you utilize those opportunities? Because if you think about who's coming into the workforce or even the, the, uh, the network of skills that you have, it's getting more diverse. And so your an organization's ability to be able to utilize those technologies and utilize those levers with a lens on equity will help to help people determine, I'm not gonna spend my time there because this is the kind of experience I have, or I'm gonna spend my time here because this is the kind of experience I have. So when you think about that whole spaghetti ball of factors, it's a really interesting set of trends that I, I think we're seeing. And I think we're at a, it felt like we were at a pivotal point when we were in COVID. We certainly were, COVID accelerated a bunch of trends that we all already started seeing it'll be interesting to see how the current economic environment maybe alters that or changes that or sends those trends in a consistent direction.
0: Well, oh, that's a that's a really good point. And of course, uh, you're in the States and I'm in Europe, and I think a lot of what we're seeing is very parallel economically and, and policy-wise. I like what you said about the lens of equity. I think training leaders to... to Look at what they're doing through a lens of equity is something that we need to do more of because, as you said, we now have a broader base of of remote talent of of you know skills that potentially would have never made it through the door of your more conservative, uh, traditional style of company, and and now these resources are out there and we need to find ways to access them and and benefit from them and and also benefit the people providing them. So that lens of equity really resonates with me. Now i know that you've been doing some work with women of the vine and spirits working with with wine companies on dei what do you think are the particular challenges to the wine industry for for dei we touched briefly on the face on the fact that it has been primarily a male dominated industry sector for well since time began you know you look at paintings the men are pouring wine but yeah. uh, you know biblically the men were pouring the wine but uh, in in Italy, I think we're a bit behind, or more than a bit, but I, I won't touch that too much. But uh, what do you think the particular challenges are? And I know, as I said, you've been working with uh, women of the and spirits in the U.S. What's what's happening there?
1: Yeah, so we just published in, in March on International Women's Day, we published our second study research that we did focused on what barriers people who identify as women face in the industry and when you look at some of the results they were pretty consistent both years which i don't know it's good news bad news the good news i guess is that we got a much larger sample size the second year
0: are you enjoying this podcast Don't forget to visit our YouTube channel, Mama Jumbo Shrimp, for fascinating videos covering Stevie Kim and her travels across Italy and beyond, meeting winemakers, eating local foods, and taking in the scenery. Now, back to the show.
1: The bad news is the results were pretty consistent. And what the results told us is that uh, the industry is one only above automotive, I think, in terms. Oh my of god! Attract- really? That's terrible. Yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, in terms of attractiveness, so when you, if you look at the study, there's this chart with like 25 lines, and and the Bev Elk industry is at the bottom, um, and the re and the reason close to the bottom, a cup one up from the bottom, and that was consistent with last year. And so there's a perception, and this was, remember this research was done by people who identify as women. So there's a perception of women that this is not an attractive industry for me to come into. And that's a problem. And one of the things, the first time I presented last year's research, I was at the Vibe conference actually in San Diego, and I was on a panel with amazing people like Andrea McBride of McBride Sisters Wine Company which is the largest black female owned wine company in the U S and they have a really interesting story. Google, you know, you can Google it. If you, if you care to do that. It's but a
0: beautiful story. I highly recommend anybody should Google that.
1: It's a, it's a great story. And I've remained friends with Andrea since then. But anyway, when, what I said to the audience was, I am, a, I am a wine lover. I have 300 bottle a pair of twin wine fridges. Um, which I've had for a very long for a very long time. All right. I'm so like,
0: I'm coming to your house when I come to Atlanta.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. But when you think about the product, the product is around celebration. It's fun. It's, you know, celebrating those wonderful life moments. Someone, you know, hitting a milestone um, or achieving something. The product itself is I because I find a lot of joy in wine in particular. But wine and spirits, the product is designed to, for life's joyous moments. And then there's this huge disconnect between life's joyous moments and is it a desirable industry to come into, which that's a PR problem, but it's also a reality of the kinds of experiences that people who identify as women are having in, in these companies. So there's a lot of opportunity to what I would call interrupting bias where it's happening, particularly in in those companies. And the other thing that uh, we found, especially this, this past year, where we did more analysis and looking at the different tiers. So um, uh, suppliers and distributors, wholesalers. And you, what we see, I was at WSWA, Wine Spirits and Wholesalers of, of America, the conference um, back a few weeks ago in Orlando, presenting the research again with Deborah uh, Brenner, who founded Women of the Vine and Spirits, and when I was on the show floor, which was all suppliers for the most part, there's a lot of interesting ha- things happening in the supplier community. There's actually some interesting things happening in the wine community in particular. There's where we see a little bit of a difference in what's happening is between suppliers and distributors. Um, the late, the sort of the history of how distribution companies have sort of grown up, family owned there's a lot of history there that creates some barriers for major kinds of changes i think so when we look at the data we see differences in the supplier and you know and those two tiers of the of the industry around where people feel like some things are happening from an equity perspective and where there's there's opportunity. There's opportunity across the board, but you start to see some differences emerge between the supplier and the wholesaler community or the distribu- distribution community.
0: That's so interesting. I, I think here in Italy, of course, history and and family and tradition creates barriers to change for sure. Uh, you know, the majority of the wine industry in Italy is is male driven. Although, you know, my focus is a lot on on female led wineries and and female winemakers um but we know there aren't enough uh we know that nowadays there are 50% women in all of the analogy schools across Italy but only 8% of them get a job when they graduate so uh, yeah. there is there is still this bias and i agree with you about a need to interrupt bias what are some of the strategies that you offer companies or or often you know I'm, I'm not sure whether you're working directly with yet, maybe you will, uh, with people who are wanting to enter industries and fighting against this bias. How do you uh, give people strategies? What strategies for interrupting this kind of bias and these barriers to change?
1: Most of the time, people aren't even aware that they're there. Absolutely. That's spot on. And so one of the things that we talk with organizations about is, okay, let's level set. There's bias everywhere. If you have a brain, you have bias. That's the way your brain. There are shortcuts in your brain that help your brain make sense of the world, and that's where bias can sort of creep in. Um, and and it, our, our bias is one of the things. I always use this analogy. It's one of the things that helped us not get eaten by larger animals at a different point in our evolution. So it's it's a it's it's just a reality. We shouldn't. I, I When people talk about well that's conscious bias or unconscious bias, it really doesn't matter in in my opinion it's bias that's having a potential negative impact on someone um, and very often it's people who are have identities that are historically marginalized that tend to get negatively impacted by bias so one of the things we advise organizations to do at the get-go is figure out how it's playing out in your organization. where is it having? The greatest impact as a starting point. Uh, lots of organizations, particularly in the U.S., after the horrendous murder of George Floyd and Ahmed Arbrey and Breonna Taylor, and you know the list feels like it's endless. It was a bit of a wake-up call. There was a lot of sort of uh, recognition of this whole concept um, upon you know when that happened um, in the U.S. And so lots of organizations they started think or not it's not that they started they were sort of re-energized around this whole concept we have to take a look at this and so they started doing a lot of things started having bias training or other types of training which is really important you need to do those things what i would contend and this is the conversation i very often have is peanut butter spreading activities across the organization is less impactful to an outcome than actually targeting your activities because you're not going to have endless resources and, and, you know, whether it's money or people to focus on everything you could potentially be focusing on. So how do you diagnose where bias is happening and where it's yeah, having these Such a good insights? point.
0: I, I refer to it as window dressing and lip service. It's, you know, you can't just chuck a big you know a a big wave of of information at the problem and hope that you solve it somehow you have to be specific
1: yeah and because when you peanut butter spread it your outcomes usually get watered down a bit and so i always use the analogy of going to a doctor so if i go to a doctor and my leg is broken and the doctor there is some pain in my arm however and the doctor tries to treat my arm. I still have the bigger problem is my leg. So we need to fix that. Um, it's simplistic, but it sort of outlines how important it is to actually go in. And we've done. I've done this many times at this point. Collect some data. Look at, okay, we can look at, you look at HR data to figure out, well, who do you have? Who is a trading? Who is leaving? Who is staying? How are they experiencing the organization? So you take sort of this, quantitative data, you put it together with this qualitative data, which is having conversations with people, particularly people who identify in, in some of those historically marginalized categories and ask them, what is it like for you here? What yeah, You, you know... need
0: to correctly diagnose the problem and you can't do that right. unless you're getting hard data.
1: Right. So looking at that quantitative, qualitative data, pulling it together, it tells a very clear story. In every instance I've done this, it's told a pretty clear story of what's happening and where the focus needs to be. So that's that's how I would suggest organizations treat this. And then, they're you know in, I would say, a lot of bias tends to hang out in the HR processes because that's where people are onboarded, they're recruited, they're promoted, um, and developed. That's where we tend to find bias it's in the how are you bringing people in what kinds of people you're bringing in how is bias coming into play with how you're recruiting into the organization what kind of skills you actually what how you're everything right down to how job descriptions are written in inclusive utilizing inclusive language or not that is so
0: interesting language in in this it's sort of using this lens again going back to language is so important because there is still so much exclusive language um particularly in in wine and beverage
1: and 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 when you're even if you're as someone who might you you have one of those identities that's historically marginalized you look at how something is written in terms of what's required for the job and if you can't see yourself and if it's you know, male language can be used very heavily in in job descriptions. And then you go and you interview and you interview with a bunch of people that don't, whether look like you or don't share any of the identities, same identities as you have. It doesn't, (laughs) that's not a recipe for I want to go spend my time at this organization. So it's those kinds of things. As an organization's is able to pinpoint. You know what? We have a real problem in talent acquisition, and we have a real problem in who's on the succession plan because we see bias. Using utilizing a random example, we see bias hanging out in both of these places. So this is where we're going to spend our time for the next year to whatever it's going to. You know, it, it could require to to remedy that those problems.
0: Well, it's it's just fascinating. I you know this is this is a topic that I'm very passionate about, but to hear how you're attacking it in a, you know, sort of laser-focused manner, I think is really important. And um, I think your message, the hard data, I've seen that report and the numbers coming out of it. Um, it's it's important for people to be exposed to this and to the failures that we continue to perpetuate by not addressing specific problems. It's not enough to send everybody for a four-hour bias training course uh, that's not going to solve the, the actual problem. So, Um, Before I let you go, I want to address something that uh, our listeners, because we're audio, aren't going to see, but I can see because you and I are actually on a Zoom call. Behind you on your green screen, it says the year of allyship and the power to empower. This is something that I think is really important. What does allyship mean to you and and how would you like to see that play out in in the alcohol and beverage industry?
1: Allyship is incredibly important it's been incredibly important to me personally and so i have i have a bias around this particular topic but given who still a lot of the um, who still makes the rules a lot of the organizations we all operate in have been created by a certain set of people so those rules still continue and so while we're trying to make change in a set of institutions that were created with inherent bias, because that's just the reality of our, our lives. Allies become really important. And what allyship looks like is, you know, Cynthia, as an example, I'm your boss. And so the hypothetical. And so one of the things as an ally I can do for you is you pitch an idea to a leadership team. And for whatever reason, it's like, well, you know there there's there's bias that might be at play in either listening to that pitch or not. And what I can do as an ally as someone who is a part of that team, is a part of the the team of people that makes the rules, is I can amplify you. I can say, did you I don't know if you heard what Cynthia actually said, but she was pointing out these three things which are really important to our strategy. And when I say it as someone who's part of the group that actually helps make the rules or has historically made the rules, it sounds different to the people hearing it very often. And so amplifying you and supporting you and, and not le- letting you get talked over and not letting you get sort of marginalized, literally, in a particular situation, I'm being an ally. That's what we want allies to do. We all can be allies. We all can be, you know, as I'm a straight white woman, and so, one of the things that I try as much as I possibly can to do, um, and I get to do it so much in the practice in which I operate, which is amazing, is amplifying, you know, a person of color, a woman of color, someone who's part of the LGBTQIA plus community, someone who has different abilities than sort of the, you know, the, the norm as we talk about neurodiversity and, and ableism and Sometimes perceptions that can go along with what someone's abilities are. We all have an opportunity to be an ally, and being an ally is really about utilizing whatever influence you have to amplify someone who might be getting marginalized. It's a huge opportunity. We can all do it.
0: I think this is so great. I'm, I, you know, I'm a big fan of women in violence spirits, and I'm a big fan of all ally programs that. Promote that sort of amplification and and support, and I think just sometimes validation is is hugely important, especially to newer and younger voices uh, coming from communities that perhaps they didn't have a role model um as they were you know coming into their career as a young person so i I love what you've said about that, and giving um Giving a voice to someone, using our own power to empower others—I think it's something we forget. Especially, I'm the same. I'm, you know, I'm a straight white woman from Ohio. You know, I, I live in Europe, and I—I I forget that I have earned my power and I have the ability, and in fact, the responsibility to to right. use that power to empower others. So, I I just can't thank you enough for this whole conversation. It was really great, and I know that our listeners will love it too. Uh, I think it's very. Important in the wine industry, so thank you very, very much for coming on today and talking to us about this.
1: It's been a pleasure. It's great to great to meet you, and I look forward to continuing the conversation in any way that we possibly can because it's so important. We can't. We have to keep this conversation, and this whole topic, front absolutely.
0: and center. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, thank you again. Thank you.